City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 12.11 First Avenue North on the third floor. Uh, who was in the land of Australia, sort of before uh, the uh, imperial colonies came, sort of before the British took over uh, the island of Australia, there was a great king there, and he amassed a ton of wealth, and so his tribe... Uh, began to grow, and they all lived in grass houses, the sort that we think of when we sort of remember hearing about the people moving out west when we were in middle school uh, history. We sort of learned about, oh, they made grass houses. How neat is that? Or maybe not. And so he lived in this grass house. And as his kingdom grew more and more, he was sort of uh, always jealous of the tribe next door. You see, while they lived in grass houses, these other tribe lived in stone homes, and the king of that tribe had a great throne. And so the king of our original tribe, the king of the, the grass house tribe, began to, to grow and amass more and more wealth, and eventually he built onto his house. He did something that was somewhat unheard of at the time, which was he built a second story onto his grass house. And slowly but surely, they began to overtake the people who lived in stone houses. They grew more and more, and finally, there was a great war. And after this great war, the king won the victory and took all of the spoils, including the throne, back. He took the throne back to his home, and he stored it in the treasure room that he had built for himself up above on the second story of his grass house. This huge throne, he put it up there. And so to celebrate the victory, the king and all of his advisors, they gathered together and they threw a party. They threw a party in this king's house. But calamity was not far behind. Because the weight of this throne brought this crashing down on top of this king and the advisors. And it was a great tragedy which teaches us that people in grass houses shouldn't stow thrones. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. That is terrible. Even by my standards, okay? Even by my standards, that is bad. But I've heard some of your humor. I know some of you, and I know that you also should not throw stones from your glass houses. This is something that we're all acquainted with, that the pot shouldn't call the kettle black. We're all aware of these sort of proverbs, these sort of ideas that teach us that we should be slow to critique others, and especially slow to critique others whose flaws are so similar to ours. Your dad jokes are as bad as my dad jokes. I know it. We should be slow to do that. But what's, what's true about us? What's true about us as humans is that rather than being slow to critique others, we are very quick to critique others, aren't we? Now, for some of us, this is out loud. Some of us can't stop saying it out loud and have lost friends over this. But for most of us, the way that this works is we look around, we survey people around us, and are constantly critiquing and judging them silently in our heads. Did you see what so-and-so was doing? Did you see what so-and-so said? Did you see so-and-so's post? And while we might never say these things out loud, what happens is in our heart, we begin to critique others because there is something just naturally 
to us as humans. There is something instinctive about us to want to look around, to look outside of ourselves and critique others. It's interesting because we've been walking through the life of David, and in many, day, in many ways, this is what we did last week, is it not? We looked at the story of David, David and Bathsheba and Uriah. We looked at David's massive and catastrophic sin, all that he went through to cover up his sin, to sort of try to hide it from everyone's view. We looked at that and we said, shame on David. But we also saw how quick we are to do so many of the same things. How quick we are to hide our sins. Well, this week we're picking up that story not too long after. We're picking up the story of what happens after David has killed Uriah and brought Bathsheba to the palace and they have a newborn son. What is God going to do about this? Good question. Thanks for asking. I'd like to tell you. The way I'd like to tell you is by reading uh, First, or, I'm sorry, Second Samuel chapter 12. The way that we do this at City Church is we'll all stand together. I'll read it out loud. You can follow along in your own Bibles. If you don't have one, uh, there's one on the church app, but it'll also be on the screen in front of you. So if you would, please stand as we hear Second Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he bought. And he bought and brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. 
Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And he became sick. David sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, and we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us, how can we then say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He went into his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is the thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when he died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her. She bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet so that he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. You and I are far more concerned about other people's sin than we are our own. The reason we are quick to criticize, the reason we are quick to throw stones and call kettles is because we are more concerned with the sins of other people than we are our own. And we see that really clearly in David. Because what happens in this story? Nathan the prophet comes to David and he begins to tell David a story. He begins to tell David a story of a rich man and a poor man. And this wouldn't be strange because part of the king's job was to decide in legal cases. He was not just the king, but he was also sort of the ultimate judge. You'll remember the story, some of you, of Solomon with the couple that was fighting over the baby and his decisions there. This is sort of the same thing, except what we know reading this story that David doesn't is that Nathan is setting a trap. And man, it's a good one. I hope to one day preach a sermon even half as good as this sermon that Nathan preached. Because he had David. Hook, line, and sinker. He said there was one man who had many flocks and herds. He didn't just have many herds. He didn't just have many flocks. He had many flocks and many herds. This guy is rich and has tons of animals. And then there's this other poor man who doesn't have any flocks. He doesn't have any livestock. What he has is a pet. Right? We all understand the fundamental difference between a pet and livestock. I'm reminded of Friday Night Lights as the seasons wore on. There was a character named Tinker who was the offensive lineman and Tinker uh, won a bet and won a pig from one of his teammates and this pig was his pet. And one day Tinker is eating a plate of bacon and and the teammates say, what are you doing? You love your pig. Why are you eating this bacon? He says, no, 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 no. Pork is on my plate. 
pigs are at my house. There's a difference, right? That's the same thing that's happening here. This little lamb that this poor man has is not something that he is raising to eat. This is the family pet. It eats from his table. It drinks from his cup. He li- it lies on the couch with him. And yet this man, with many flocks, with many herds, decides that he can't be bothered to get one of his many lambs to cook for a guest who has come into town. So what does he do? He steals the lamb from this poor man. He steals the pet from this poor man. And he cooks it. And they eat it. And David is absolutely incensed. David is angry. David is hot. And so David says, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And not only that, he's going to pay him back fourfold. What David doesn't realize until it's too late is that Nathan has brought a sword. And before Nathan, or before David realizes that Nathan has a sword, it is an inch from his neck. Because as soon as David gets so upset about this, what does Nathan say? David, you're the man. David, it's you. David, what you have done is just as bad, if not worse. Interesting as David hears this before David is exposed, how David responds. David hears this, and all of a sudden, David ramps up the religious language. When he hears this story from Nathan, when he hears about the man taking the lamb, what does he say? As the Lord lives, we're going to deal with this guy's sin. What's he doing? David is far more concerned about this incidentally fictional character than he is about his own sin. He is maximizing the sin of others and minimizing his own sin. Which, let's be honest, is a lot like what we I am very prone maximize the sin of others. To make it a very big deal. And minimize the sin that is in my own heart. David is absolutely incensed about the murder of a pet despite the fact that mere days, if not months ago, he has raped a woman and then killed her husband and had the collateral damage of killing several other soldiers in the process. David is hot about the death of a pet and seems to be casual about murder and rape in his own life. Good thing we're not like that, right? Good thing you and I don't have a tendency to look outside of ourselves and say that your sin is a big deal and my sin is not. You know, we we do this far often when we care to admit it. 
For some of us, we do this because we want to feel powerful. We want to have the sense of moral superiority over others. Yes, your sin is bad, and my sin is not really even there, and I am better than you, so let me tell you how to live your life. So let me tell you how you should be doing things. We do it for the sense of power, but for others of us, we we sort of use religion to try to cover our shame. You know what? If, if I minimize my sin, if I make sure that there's always somebody who's worse than me, maybe then I will be accepted. Maybe then my shame will be covered up and everyone will love me the way that I want to be loved because they'll see me as a spiritual person. And so we maximize the sin of others and we take our sin and say, that's not a big You see, that is exactly what David is doing here. That is exactly what you do, and it's exactly what I do. This is a professional hazard of my job, right? It's very easy for me to fall into this trap of being real focused on y'all's problems and never doing any hard work about my stuff. But the thing is, that the gospel, the message of Jesus, is always about us, not about them. The gospel always starts first in my heart. And that's what David begins to see. David begins to see how God is going to handle this. David responds to this. He's undone. But the question is, what's God going to do about this? What is justice going to look like in this case? What's interesting for you and I is we live in a culture that only understands two extremes in a situation like this. We only understand vindictive punishment or completely ignoring How do we deal with things? How do we see things happen in our life? We either want vindictive punishment. You did this wrong. You deserve to pay. We should throw the book at them. We understand what vindictive punishment looks like, or we know what it's like to completely ignore things. This is what happens oftentimes in our relationships. Either we decide that when you have wronged me, I'm going to punish you, in whatever way I see fit, or I'm just going to completely ignore it and never deal with our problem. Right? You hurt me, give me two days, I'll get over it. Right? Not that I'm going to deal with it. I'm not going to deal with it in any way, shape, or form. I'm just going to stuff it down inside and pretend it never happened. Or, I'm going to come back at you like a spider monkey. Right? This is the two ways that we respond, and this is the two ways that our culture understands how to respond when we are wronged. Either with vindictive punishment, or with completely ignoring. And so we assume that God does the same thing. We assume that God either punishes us, or ignores us. But does David get ignored by God in this scenario? No. God is the one who sent 
Nathan. God is the one who inspired Nathan with his incredible story. And not only does God send Nathan, but he also allows David to face the consequences of his actions. It's interesting that the things that that Nathan tells David are the consequences of his actions. Because you have used the sword to betray your men and kill Uriah the Hittite, that same sword that you used to kill him is always going to be hanging over your house. That these sons that you have raised to act and think that this is okay are always going to think it's okay and so they will constantly be fighting. And we see this in the lives of Solomon and his brothers. We see this in the lives of his grandsons especially. And not only that, we see this And the other thing that God says, you have taken Uriah and Uriah's wife Bathsheba in secret, your wives will be taken in public. And David's older son Absalom is going to do just that, as we'll see in the coming weeks. These are the consequences of our sin. You see, there's a difference between punishment and consequences. Punishment is suffering that someone inflicts on someone else. Consequences are the natural result of our actions. You see, we oftentimes assume that God is punishing us when all He's letting us do is see the way that our actions are playing themselves out. We get mad at God for the things that we have done to ourselves. This happens to me all the time. Most of us in St. Petersburg live in smallish or smaller houses. And storage is often at a premium in our homes, right? We don't have massive garages and closets and places to store all sorts of things. And so our, our closets get filled to the brim with all of these things. And so I will fill our pantry to the brim. And then I'll go to reach something off the top shelf. Don't you make a short joke right now. Don't you do it. And I'll try to get something off of the top shelf that I have stuffed full of sugar and flour. Why we keep the sugar and flour on the top shelf, I don't know. Just realize that's a terrible idea. Um, but, But I'll reach up there to this shelf that I have packed too tightly. And when I try to slide the drawer with the sugar that I need off of the top shelf and another bag of flour comes crashing down on my head, I am angry. And yet, who has caused this scenario? Am I being punished? Is God throwing flour bags at me? No. I'm experiencing the natural consequences of my actions. I have filled it too full. I have jammed things in there. And when I pull it down, I am pulling it down upon myself. That is the natural consequence of our actions. And our sin oftentimes has those same natural consequences. And God doesn't ignore it but lets those things play out. It doesn't take us too long to search our heart and think about the times that God has allowed the natural consequences of our sin to play out. 
But David sees this. He hears this message of what God is going to allow to happen. And he says something profound. He says, I have sinned against God. It's not just Uriah. Not just Bathsheba. It's not just the people of his kingdom and those people who are in his palace. David says, I have sinned against God. He sees his sin for what it is and ultimately that it is against God. He accepts the consequences of it. It's interesting. As soon as David repents, as soon as David sees his sin and turns from it, Nathan responds and says, God has put away your sin. God has forgiven you. David's David's repentance is not flowery. He doesn't make a big show of things, but it is genuine. And then Nathan says something else that sort of strikes us as strange. He says, God has taken away your sin, but the child is still going to die interesting as we read this passage as we read this passage in light of the New Testament it's hard not to look back and see a little bit of the picture that is being sketched here because ultimately it is the innocent great great grandson of David that dies to take the punishment for our sin You see, not only are sins not without consequence, but they are also not without punishment. Sin will always lead us to death. The good news of Jesus is that He takes that death and punishment for us. The innocent son of David takes the punishment for the sins of His people, you and I. And so we see in just this brief moment this beautiful picture of Jesus. The one who never did anything wrong. The one who never sinned, whose heart was never tempted to maximize the sins of others, but was always reliant on the Father. Who was always willing to hear what God was telling him. Who always followed God. Becomes the one who is punished for you and for me. I think from David's response, David could see this. Because what does David do after he hears this message? The first thing he does is he prays to God to have mercy on this son. If you had just been told that the result of your actions was going to be a terrible infighting in your household, and that your child was going to die, would you look and try to find and see a God who is merciful? I know I probably would. I know my response would probably be to step farther back from God. But because David was so formed by this idea that God was going to send his son to take the punishment for his sins, that David could still see the glimmer of mercy. And not only that, once the child does die, what does David do? David does something that's strange in our ears. He gets up, he washes his face and he goes and he worships. Because David can see the goodness, the beauty, and the worthiness of God. 
David's eyes are no longer on trying to pick out who all the other sinners around him are. David's eyes are now on his own heart, his repentance, and looking to the beauty of the forgiveness of Jesus. And he begins to experience that new life. Something really interesting happens in the last few verses that I read to you. What has Bathsheba been called up to this point? It's interesting, she's only been called Bathsheba a couple of times. Again and again and again, she's been called Uriah's wife. To remind us again and again what David has done. And even when we see that that first child who was born, who died, it says the baby that was born to Uriah's wife. But what happens here at the end? David went in and comforted his wife, Bathsheba. There is a new life. Something new is beginning to happen. Out of all of this tragedy, hope is beginning to spring alive anew. Because Solomon is the result of this next pregnancy. And that God says that He has set His love on Solomon. This is Him saying that this is where the line of the Messiah will continue. It's not going to come from Michael. It's not going to come from Abigail or any of David's other wives. That this son, Solomon, who God gives the nickname Jedediah, the one who God loves, is going to be where the Messiah comes from. When David repents and begins to see God as merciful, when he begins to see the change that is wrought in his heart, to see God as beautiful and worthy, he begins to experience a new sort of life from God. Which is the hope and promise of the gospel to you and to me this morning. Even people like David, people like me, people like you, who tend to be more concerned about other people's sin than their own. 